Book Two, Chapter Eleven of Arachne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Arachne by George Ebers. Translated by Mary J. Safford. Book Two, Chapter Eleven. When returned slave had finished his report, the sun was already shining into his master's room. Without lying down again, the latter went at once to the tennis notary, who had moved to Alexandria two months before, and with his assistance raised the money which his friend needed. Worldly Melampus had received the news that Myrtilus was still alive in a very singular manner. Even now he could grasp only one thing at a time, and he loved Hermann with sincere devotion. Therefore, the lawyer who had so jealously striven to expedite the blind man's entering into possession of his friend's inheritance would very willingly have permitted Merchilus, doubtless an invalid, to continue to rest quietly among the dead. Yet his kind heart rejoiced at the deliverance of the famous young artist, and so, during Ermond's story, he had passed from sincere regret to loud expressions of joyous sympathy. Lastly, he had placed his whole property at the disposal of Ermin, who had paid him liberally for his work, to provide for the blind sculptor's future. This generous offer had been declined, but he now assisted Ermin to prepare the emancipation papers for his faithful buyers, who found a ship that was bound to Tanis. Toward evening he accompanied Ermin to the harbour, and, after a cordial farewell from his helpful friend, the artist, with new freedmen, Beas and slave-clerk patron, went on board the vessel, now ready to sail. The voyage was one of the speediest, yet the end came too soon for both master and servant. Herman had not yet heard enough of the friend beyond his reach, and Beas was far from having related everything he desired to tell about Myrtilus and Ledja. Yet he was now permitted to express every opinion that entered his mind, and this had occupied a great deal of time. Beas had also sought to know much more about Ermond's past and future than he had yet learned, not merely from curiosity, but because he foresaw that Myrtilus would not cease to question him about his blind friend. The misfortune must have produced a deep and lasting effect upon the artist's joyous nature, for his old bearing was pervaded by such earnestness and dignity that years instead of months seemed to have elapsed since their separation. It was characteristic of Daphne that her lover's blindness did not alienate her from him. Yet why had not the girl, who still desired to become his wife, been able to wed the helpless man who had lost his sight? If the father did not wish to be separated from his daughter, Surely he could live with the young couple. A home was quickly made everywhere for the rich, and, if Archis was tired of his house in Alexandria, as Ermond had intimated, there was room enough in the world for a new one. But that was the way with things here below. Man was the cause of man's misfortune. Daphne and Ermond remained the same, but Archis, from an affectionate father, had become transformed into an entirely different person. If the former had been allowed to follow their inclinations, 
they would now be united and happy, while, because the third person so willed, they must go their way solitary and wretched. He expressed this view to his master, and insisted upon his opinion until Herman confided to him what had driven Archias from Alexandria. Patron, be a successor, was by no means satisfactory to him. Had Ermin retained his side, he certainly would not have purchased him, in spite of his skill as a scribe, for the Egyptian had a bad face. Oh, if only he could have been permitted to stay with his benefactor instead of this sullen man! How carefully he would have removed the stones from his darkened pathway! During the voyage, he was obliged to undergo severe struggles to keep the oath of secrecy imposed upon him. But perjury threatened him with the most horrible tortures, not to mention the sorcerous taboos whom he was to meet. So Merchelus abode remained unknown to Herman. Beas approved his master's intention of going into the desert. He had often seen the oracle of Ammon tested, and he himself had experienced the healthfulness of the desert air. Besides, it made him proud to see that Ermin was disposed to follow his dejection of pitching his tent in a spot which he designated. This was at the end of the arm of the sea at Chrysma. Several trees grew there, besides small springs, and a peaceful family of Amalekites raised vegetables in their little garden, situated on higher ground, watered by the desert wells. When a boy, before the doom of slavery had been pronounced upon him and his father, his mother, by the priest's advice, took him there to recover from the severe attack of fever which he could not shake off amid the damp papyrus plantations surrounding his parents' house. In the dry, pure air of the desert he recovered, and he would guide Hermann there before returning to Myrtilus. From Tanis they reached Tanis in a few hours, and found shelter in the home of the superintendent of Archias weaving establishments, whose hospitality Myrtles and Ermen had enjoyed before their installation in the White House, now burned to the ground. The Alexandrian bills of exchange were paid in gold by the lease of the Royal Bank, who was a good friend of Ermen. Toward evening, both rode to the Owl's Nest, taking the five talents with which the runaway wife intended to purchase freedom from her husband. As the man approached the central door of the pirate's house, a middy-aged Bayamite woman appeared and rudely ordered them to leave the island. Tabus was weak, and refused to see visitors. But she was mistaken, for when Bias, in the dialect of his tribe, shouted loudly that messengers from the wife of her grandson Hanno had arrived, there was a movement at the back of the room, and broken sentences, gasped with difficulty, expressed the old dame's wish to receive the strangers. On a sheep's wool couch, over which was spread the wolf-skin, the last gift of her son Satibus, lay the sorceress, who raised herself as Ermin passed through the door. After his greeting, she pointed to her deaf ear and begged him to speak louder. At the same time, she gazed into his eyes with a keen, penetrating glance, and interrupted him by the question. The Greek sculptor whose studio was born over his head, and blind? Blind still. In both eyes, Bias answered for his master. 
"'And you, fellow?' the old dame asked. Then, recollecting herself, stopped to reply on servant's lips with a hasty remark. "'You are the black-peared slave, a Biamite. Oh, I remember perfectly. You disappeared with the burning house.' Then she gazed intently and thoughtfully from one to the other, and at last, pointing to Bias, muttered in a whisper, "'You alone come from Hanno and Lecha, and were with them on the Hydra. Very well. What news have you for the old woman from the young couple?' The freeman began to relate what brought him to the owl's nest, and the grey-haired groaned listened eagerly, until he said that Lecha lived unhappily with her husband, and therefore had left him. She sent back to her, as the head of Anno's family, the bridal dowry with which Hanno had bought her from her father as his wife. Then Tabo struggled into a little more erect posture and asked, What does this mean? Five talents and gold, not silver talents. And she sends the money to me. To me. And she ran away from her husband, but no, no. Once more, you are a Biamite, repeated in our own language, and loudly. This ear is the better one. Bias obeyed, and the old dame listened to the end without interrupting him. Then, raising her brown right hand, covered with a network of blue-black veins, she clinched it into a fist, which she shook far more violently than Bias would have believed possible in her weak condition. At the same time, she pressed her lips so tightly together that her toothless mouth deepened into a hole, and her dim eyes shone with a keen, menacing light. For some time she found no reply. Those strange, rattling, gasping sounds escaped her having breast. At last she succeeded in uttering words, and shrieked shrilly, This! This! Away with the golden trash, with the bridal dowry of the final rejected, and once more free, the bait's fool thinks she would be like the captive fox that gnawed the rope. Oh, this age, this people! And this, this is the arty, strong lecher, daughter of the Biomets, who, there stands the blind girl, deceiver, who so admirably avenged herself. Here her voice failed and Herman began to speak to assure her that she understood Letcha's wish aright. Then he asked her for a token, by which he acknowledged the receipt of the gold, which he handed her in a stout linen bag. But his purpose was not fulfilled, for suddenly, flaming with passionate wrath, she thrust the purse aside, groaning, Not an oval of the accursed destruction of souls shall come back to Anno nor even into the family store. Until his heart and hers stopped beating, the most indissoluble bond would unite both. She desires to ransom herself from a lawful marriage concluded by her father, as if she were a captive of war. Perhaps she even wants to follow another. Hanno, brave lad, was ready to go to death for her sake, and she rewards him by bringing shame on his head and his grace on us all. Oh, these times, this world! Everything that is inviolable and wholly trampled into dust. But they are not all so. In spite of Christian infidelity, marriage is still honored among our people. 
but she who mocks what is sacred and tramples holy customs underfoot shall be accursed, execrated, given over to want, hunger, disease, death. With rattling breath and closed eyes, she leaned further back against the cushions that supported her. But Pius, in their common language, tried to soothe her, and informed her that, though Letta had probably run away from her husband, she had by no means renounced her vengeance. He was bringing two talents with him to place in the temple of Nemesis. Of Nemesis, repeated the old dame. Then she tried to raise herself, and, as she constantly sank back again, Bias aided her. But she had scarcely recovered her sitting posture when she gave to the freedman. Nemesis, who helped, and is to continue to help her to destroy her foe. Well, well, five talents, a great sum, a great sum. But the more the better. To Nemesis with them, to Hati and the Arrhenius. The talents of the avenging goddess shall cheer the beautiful face, the heart, and deliver the cursed one. A twofold malediction on her who has wronged the son of my Sedebus. While speaking, her head nodded swiftly up and down, and when at last she bowed it wearily, her visitors heard her murmur the names of Satabus and Anno, sometimes tenderly, sometimes mournfully. Finally, she asked whether anyone else was concerned in Letcher's flight, and when she learned that the Gallic bridge-builder accompanied the fugitive wife, she again started up as if frantic, exclaiming, Yes, to is with the cold. We neither need nor want it, and said of us, my son, he will bless me for renunciation. Here exhaustion again silenced her. She gazed mutely and thoughtfully into vacancy, until at last, turning to Bias, she began more calmly. You will see her again, man, and must tell her what the clan of Tabus bought with her talents. Take her my curse and let her know that her friends would be my foes, and her foes should find in Tabus a benefactress. Then, deeply buried in thought, she again fixed her eyes on the floor, but at last she called to Ermond, saying, You blind Greek, am I not right? The torch was thrust into your face, and you lost sight of both eyes. The artist assented to this question, but she bade him sit down before her, and when he bent his face near her, she raised one leaf after the other with trembling fingers, yet lightly and skillfully gazed long and intently into his eyes, and murmured, Like black Totti and lawless Simeon, and they are both cured. Can you restore me? Herman now asked in great excitement. Answer me honestly, you experienced woman. Give me back my sight and demand whatever cold and valuables I still possess. Keep them, Tab was contemptuously interrupted. Not for gold or goods will I restore you the best gift man can lose. I will cure you, because you are the person to whom the infamous wretch most ardently wished to sorest trouble. When she hoped to destroy you, she perceived in this deed the happiness which had been promised to her on a night when the full moon was shining. Today, this very night, 
this between Astarte's horns round again, and presently, wait a little while, presently you shall have what light restores you. Then she called the Biomet woman, ordered her to bring the medicine chest, and took from it one vessel after another. The box she was seeking was among the last, and, while handing it to Bias, she murmured, Oh, yes, certainly. It does one good to destroy a foe, but no less to make her foe happy. Turning to the freedman, she went on in a louder tone. You, slave, shall inform Hanno's wife that old Tabus gave the sculpture, whose blindness she caused, the remedy which restored the sight of Black Psarty, whom she knew. Here she paused, gazed upward, and murmured almost unintelligibly. Satabus Hanno, if this is the last act of the old mother, it will give ye pleasure. Then she told Hermann to kneel again, and ordered the slave to hold the lamp which her nurse Tasia had just lighted at the earth fire. The last, she said, looking into the box. But it will be enough. The odor of the earth in the south is as strong as if it had been prepared yesterday. She laid the first bandage on Ermond's eyes with her own weak fingers, at the same time muttering an incantation, but it did not seem to satisfy her. Great excitement had taken possession of her, and as the silver light of the full moon shone into her room, she waved her hands before the artist's eyes, and fixed her gaze upon the threshold illuminated by the moonbeams, ejaculating sentences incomprehensible to the blind man. Bia supported her, for she had risen to her full height, and he felt how she tottered and trembled. Yet her strength held out to whisper to Hermann, Nearer, still nearer, by the light of the August one whose rays greet us, let it be said, you will see again. Await your recovery patiently in a quiet place in the pure air, not in the city. Refrain from everything with which the Greeks intoxicate themselves. Shun wine, and whatever eats the blood. Recovery is coming. I see it dawning near. You will see again as surely as I now curse the woman who abandoned the husband to whom she vowed fidelity. She rejoiced over your blindness, and she will gnash her teeth with rage and grief when she hears that it was taboos would brought light into the darkness that surrounds you. With these words, she pushed off the freedman's supporting arms and sank back upon the couch. Again Herman tried to thank her, but she would not permit it, and said in an almost inaudible tone, I really did not give the soft to do you good, the last act of all. Finally, she murmured a few words of direction for its use, and added that he must keep the sunlight from his blind eyes by bandages and shades, as if it were a cruel foe. When she paused, and Bias asked her another question, she pointed to the door, exclaiming as loudly as her weakness permitted, Go, I tell you, go! Herman obeyed her and left her, accompanied by the freedman, who carried the box of salve so full of precious promise. 
The next morning, Bias delivered to the astonished priest of Nemesis the large gifts intended for the avenging goddess. Before Ermon entered the boat with him and his Egyptian slave, the freedman told his master that Gula was again living in perfect harmony with the husband who had cast her off, and Taos, Lech's younger sister, was the wife of the young Biomet who, she had feared, would give up his wooing on account of her visit to Ermon's studio. After a long voyage through the canal, which had been dug a short time before, connecting the Mediterranean with Red Sea, the three men reached Glisma. Opposite to east, on the eastern shore of the narrow northern point at the Erythian Sea, Red Sea, laid the goal of their journey, and thither Beas led his blind master, followed by the slave on shore. End of Book Two, Chapter Eleven. Recording by Anna Simão from Portugal.